Welcome everyone. I am Will Fenton, Director of Research and Public Programs at the Library Company of Philadelphia. I suspect almost all of you know uh, the Library Company. We are a library founded by Benjamin Franklin. Today we are an independent research library with uh, fantastic program areas in visual culture, women's history, African-American history, business and commercial history, um, and early Americana. We also have a tremendous fellowship program that has really helped us to sustain this series. Uh, we are doing an early bird special of our fireside chat. So normally at seven o'clock on Thursdays, but we moved it back because this is a special event. This is the annual visual culture program fellows lecture. Did I get that right, Erica? <laughs> and so we have given it a little bit more space. We've moved it up a little bit earlier to accommodate folks' schedules to get it in before folks have their dinner and then, you know, call it a night. Um, so I have a very easy job here today. I'm just here to kick us off to talk a little bit about logistics and now to turn it over to that MC. Uh, Erica Piola is our curator of graphic arts, but very importantly, our director of the visual culture program. How about it, Eric? No. Thank you, Will. I really appreciate it. Um, so I just, again, I want to thank Will and thank all of you um, for being here um, this evening. And as um, Will said, I'm um, Erica Piola. I'm the director of the visual culture program, as well as the curator of graphic arts. Um, as Will um, mentioned, as many of you know, the library company holds over a million books, graphic materials, pieces of ephemera, and art and artifacts in our holdings that are rich for the study of American history and culture. Among our several collecting strengths is visual culture, and in 2008, the library started the Visual Culture Program with the mission to foster the research and creative use of historical visual materials. A Visual Culture Fellowship has been a part of that mission since the program's inception. Tonight, we are so pleased to have our 2019-2020 Visual Culture Fellow, Rebecca Santier, to speak with us. Rebecca is currently a PhD candidate in the Department of the History of Art and Architecture at Brown University, where her research focuses on 18th and 19th century print culture. Her dissertation on the Neapolitan American artist Nicolino Caglio examines the overlap of popular culture and the fine arts in the Atlantic world. In recent years, Rebecca served as the Florence B. Selden Fellow in the Department of Prints and Drawings at the Yale University Art Gallery, and her research has been supported by the American Antiquarian Society, the Joukowsky Research Travel Fund at Brown, and the Winterthur Museum Garden and Library, in addition to the library company. This evening, Rebecca's talk, Carbon Futures, Cultivating Coal Consumption in the Second Quarter of the 19th Century, is an outgrowth of her research at the library company, which entailed an eco-critical and holistic approach to her study of artist Callio and his panoramic and urban landscape work. During her time at the library, Santier explored many of our holdings related to the Schuylkill Coal Company, as well as coal as a new fossil fuel. Tonight, Rebecca will examine how the public was conditioned to consume coal, not just as an energy source, but as an idea within the social world and material culture. Drawing on period text and illustrations, including travel logs, almanacs, journals, and advertisements, she will consider how contemporary audiences came to understand coal in three ways, through the lens of landscape, as a geological specimen, and, a central, and as a central component of the domestic sphere. We will learn about how coal's multiple roles in the visual economy of the early 19th century prompted a broadening of its use in the following decades. It is now my pleasure to introduce Rebecca Santier. Wonderful. Well, thanks to Will again, and especially Erica for that lovely introduction. And thank you all for attending my fireside chat this evening. I know it's a very um, busy time of the year and everyone is facing Zoom and a, a virtual event fatigue. So I want to reiterate my appreciation for those who are joining us tonight. 
My talk focuses on some of the ideas and images in my secondary research project, which is the visual culture of coal, an interest that emerged while I was researching one of Nicolino Calio's paintings for my dissertation. As the recipient of the William H. Helfin Fellowship in the, the Visual Culture Program at the Library Company last year, I spent some of my time consulting materials related to coal, which allowed me to develop both my interest and my ideas further. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all the LCP staff, especially Erica, Sarah, Andrea, and Connie for, for all of their assistance, conversations, and suggestions during my engaging month at the LCP. As a scholar, my methodology is object-centered. And so in hopes of engaging you all over all of this um, virtual format, the themes of my talk tonight are grounded in the images that I'll be sharing. You'll notice that from my still percolating ideas that I'm interested in how the multifaceted print culture about coal helped shape not only the discourse about its visual culture, but also its attendant consumer culture. To define my terms by the, by the visual culture of coal, I'm referring to the set of conditions where coal is imaged, where, when, why, and how. As this late 19th century infographic suggests, the market and by extension, public awareness or attention to anthracite coal went from virtually nil to very significant between 1820 and 1850, only to expand exponentially in the second half of the 19th century. And just so I'm, in case it doesn't show up on your screens, um, right here at the top is 1820 and right here at this point is 1850. So it gets, you know, in terms of this isn't, this is actually a schematic, it's not to scale with all the attendant, you know, info on the bottom, but just to give you an idea of the expansion, um, that there was still, there's much more that happened between 1850 and 1770, 1875, but here still between 1830 and 1850, there was a huge amount of growth. Considering this infographic, um, comparing, excuse me, comparing this infographic to survey results, geological sections and a topographical map, we notice a kindred nature in their dramatic tonal striated linearity. Yet, as graphic representations, we know that these two images work differently. The peak-like image tracking anthracite transport tonnage di diagrammatically establishes a two-dimensional dual-axis scale to correspond to weights and measures over time, whereas the survey map and cross-section refer directly to coal seams and the topography of eastern Pennsylvania, its hills, its valleys, town plans, and et cetera. But yet to go to these spots in person, we would not observe them in the same manner represented in the survey, not as spliced land masses or precisely gradient steps um, viewed down. While I won't be featuring any other maps or graphs in my talk tonight, my topic is interested in the representational strategies related to coal. Simply put, my research questions investigate what did the public awareness of coal look like in this first phase of growth during the second quarter of the 19th century. In this period, knowledge production about, the, about this relatively new energy source coincided with the formation of public opinion about coal, which was simultaneously occurred as the consumer public was marketed coal as a fuel of choice. Other energy sources like wood were familiar in that it was used for purposes besides fuel and it, and it had a natural association with trees, which were widespread and fairly commonplace. Coal, on the other hand, did not have as much as an easy referent. It wasn't much to look at as a dark lump, but a rock, but not a mineral, sourced from far away from the urban centers, either by quarrying surface deposits or through more difficult and destructive work of subterranean mining. George Lehman's 1835 lithograph displays some of the ambiguity of what coal mining entailed in the first half of the 19th century, perhaps unintentionally. 
working in a monochromatic tonal medium, Lehman's sense of depth is muddled in this print with outcropping similarly flush against each other and cart tracks not logically laid. A team of laborers surface mine a hill, or so it would seem, though there doesn't seem to be any order in their work, nor is there any material product of their labor nearby. Coal, that would be any more distinguishable from the piles of the earth that they've been moving in this print. What is the value of Lehman's lithography? What information did it, did it part to its audience if that was its goal? My interest is not in evaluating the efficacy of images conveyance of knowledge or information about coal, but rather interrogating the representational strategies used by image makers and businesses in promoting coal in the second quarter of the 19th century, as well as respective mediums of these representational strategies. My talk tonight is divided into four sections. After introducing how an interest in the visual culture of coal emerged in my own scholarship by looking at Nicolino, one of Nicolino Calio's paintings, I'll briefly discuss earlier examples of coal's representations abroad. The remainder of my time will be spent um, examining how coal, primarily anthracite, or more correctly, the knowledge and information about anthracite was introduced to a 19th century public in accordance with two different themes. As a geological specimen that I'll treat as a very short case study, and then um, a longer case study for its use within the domestic setting. My interest, yes, my interest in thinking about coal grew out of my dissertation on Calio, but also indirectly out of a paper I presented at the library company at the William Birch and the Complexities of American Visual Culture Symposium held in October 2018. In that paper, I examined how Calio's topographical gouache paintings featured large infrastructural projects, such as the Fairmount Waterworks and the New York Harlem Railroad, had prompted viewers to become art chair spectators and active participants in their ocular consumption of the changing landscape of civic sites that also became locations of polite leisure. At the time, I was working with a horrible reproduction um, and a very helpful audience member at the talk alerted me that that, that work, which is huge, it's about four feet by five feet, was at that time with a dealer in Philadelphia. So when I went to Philadelphia next in a few months, I um, went and saw the work in person. And once upon seeing it in person, certain features jumped to the fore, changing my interpretation of this work. On the surface, Calio's depiction of the Fairmount Waters works does not appear that different from Thomas's Birch's earlier version um, from just a decade earlier. And it's the work that Calio had taken as his source image. But upon analyzing this work in person, I realized that Calio's artwork very subtly places more emphasis on the active canal in the foreground. Running parallel to Frederick Graff's classical revival facade of the waterworks, the Schuylkill Canal, or the navigation as it was then called, was itself a type of waterworks. Chartered in 1815, opened in 1825, and completed in 1827, the long planned inland navigation system spanned 108 miles of pools and canals um, with 92 locks to accommodate gradient differences, facilitating the movement of goods and people in Eastern Pennsylvania with the explicit aim of transporting coal from the, south, from the Southern Anthracite deposits near Port Carbon in Pottsville down the Schuylkill River to Philadelphia and markets further afield. My new interpretation of Calio's composition centered on, reading, uh, centered on a reading of this work that despite its painting's title held the Schuylkill Canal as its real subject. Occupying just as much space as the famed waterworks and situated closer to the picture plane and therefore the viewer, the canal was painted in greater detail. Collier also deployed conventions to provide this 
portion of the composition with greater visual interest, pleasantly bending the waterway and the path that went along its side and inserting intermediator figures for the viewer to identify with, figures who stroll and observe this side of the school cool as a part of polite, refined activity. With just a few details, Cleo himself, a newcomer to the city when he painted this work, quickly surmised that the changing tide of the economy and relays Cole's new central role. A barge heavily laden with coal has passed through the last lock on the navigation system. It continues to head down um, to the harbor to sell their loads in Philadelphia. And another barge um, in the immediate foreground here on the left, um, but sorry, it's on the lower right of the composition. Um, this one pauses to let the earlier barge through. This barge's cargo, the one that's going upriver, is covered um, with a slack pinched cloth. Seeming to head back up the canal, this vessel would not be carrying coal, but the artist's inclusion of the woman cooking a fire over open um, flame is an overt reference to the canal's role in the sprout supplying the vital energy source. The adoption of anthracite coal as the Eastern Seaboard's primary heating source mitigated the United States escalating energy crisis, which had been worsening since the late 18th century and manifested as an increased prices for and depleting reserves of firewood. This strain was worsened by the rapidly growing urban populations over the course of the 19th century. Sourcing coal that could be easily brought to market circumvented large scale deforestation Ensuring that, the ensuring that the nation's landscapes would remain picturesque in its beauty. Lest any members of Collio's contemporary audience were not Philadelphia locals when they first, um, when the artist first exhibited this artwork, the artist makes clear the purpose of the canal with a sign bearing the words, Schuylkill Wait Coal on a structure that is attached to the lock, the, um, lock keeper's house. In 1835, the year that Collio exhibited the celebrated Fairmount, the navigation company had reported their collected toll on coal alone to be $204,490, received from over 226,692 tons of anthracite coal transported through the school canals to Philadelphia for use in the city and to be shipped elsewhere along the middle Atlantic. And I just show here a close up of the graph so you can see here we are at 35, um, how far they've come from 1820. This is when the canal opened in 22 and then open more fully around there. The juxtaposition of these two ideas, of the necessity of coal as a fuel and as a source of energy, and the Schuylkill Navigations Company's profits suggest a capitalistic enterprise stands in stark contrast to the Fairmont Waterworks. The waterworks were held as the archetype of a public good, a civil engineering marvel, a municipal utility, a spot offering polite, polite leisure, that represented fiscal management and clean renewable energy. This had not always been the case. Um, within a few years of the waterworks first opening in 1815, the cost of firewood um, to power the steam engines pumping water up to the works reservoir was devastating the city's coffers. In 1819, 3,650 um, cords of wood had been purchased for the sum of $30,858, which at the time was astronomical. I mean, so the nation's ongoing fuel crisis meant that the waterworks energy expenses would only increase. This prompted the city to revert to the older more dependable source of water power, damming the school cool to allow new water wheels to harness the river's power. 
these slower moving waters would become subject to pollution through the increased industry on the Schuylkill, which had been powered by coal and transported in the same canal and soon afterwards railroads, resulting in the river to be deemed unsafe for human consumption. Despite that the river itself through its power was available to be a clean energy source, which ultimately led the waterworks um, because of the pollution to be officially decommissioned in the early 20th century. My understanding of coal's rise as a fuel source at the expense of devastating other natural resources and landscapes, as well as the extracting human costs has been shaped by sociologist Jason Moore's work on the capital scene as a way of analyzing how capitalism is the driving force of ecological crisis. Such a framework is useful in establishing a wide parameter what can be considered um, a part of the visual culture of coal, visual and material culture of coal. Because I have found that the specimen of coal itself is so seldom imaged, the visual and material culture does not just include pictures of rock specimens or mining tunnels, but also considers coal made possible, what coal made possible, cooking and heating of homes and businesses, the hardware that made these tasks possible, the powering of steam engines, factories, and the goods they produced, boats and trains and the things that they transported, all these networks um, facets into the modern life that, anthrac that anthracite and other coals actively contributed to. It is also incorrect and frankly harmful to separate the objects of these histories from those traditionally assigned to the canon of fine art. Neither groups, um, neither groups of objects exist in a, va exist in a vacuum. So just for an example, early in my career, I was the Crest Fellow at the Frick, um, the mansion of the house of the former, that houses the former collection of Henry Clay Frick. Frick's fortune was made through the turning of the, of the softer victimous coal of Western Pennsylvania into coke, a high carbon near pure form of fuel that was used in smelting iron, which led Frick to later on become associated with Carnegie Steel and US Steel. As an industrialist, he was anti-union, famously having an antagonistic role in the 1892 homestead strikes and that the nature of his industries were environmentally destructive. As the connoisseur of old master paintings, his collections are now implicated in the source of his wealth with a legacy of coal now part of these objects, cultural biography. Okay, and just to switch gears a little bit, I'm going to think about um, as we're setting up to think about how does coal get imaged in the 19th century, I'm going to talk about earlier um, visualizations or how it gets addressed abroad. Coal wasn't always conceived as a necessity or an even essential fuel source. In this print, a mesotint engraved and dating from, the seven, from 1720, only a century prior to the period, um, that's my primary focus, the, the market for coal is likened to a bubble consciously drawing attention um, in comparison between coal speculators and the recent disastrous economic scare of the South Seas bubble. In, the, in this financial downturn, the wildly inflated share price of the overseas trading company precipitated the crash of the London stock market. To be clear, the message of this print is not to express disdain over coal or sea coal that was, was then known, so named because the coal was transported to London from Newcastle in the Northeast England by ships sailing southward along the North Sea and then up the, to the Thames to London, but rather by canal or overland routes. Um, the criticism of this print is directed at those who invest in the coal trade, seeking quick profits and assigning exorbitant values to the abstract notion of futures contracts, to use the financial term 
building fortunes that had been based on hopeful speculation rather than concern um, themselves with the market demand and the physical concrete object of coal itself. 46 later, the publisher's son reissued the same print with new text in a reworked central image. As the mezzotint portion of this meat trips does not yield as many impressions as line engraving, the printmaker resurfaced the plate, burnishing out the exhausted pitted grooves left by the mezzotint rocker in the initial image, and then again re-rocked, incised with a new design. Unlike his predecessor, the figure in the center of this print has already been suffered his reversal of fortune. Dressed in mourning clothes, he wipes a tear from his haggard visage against his shoulder. Instead of a bulging bag of specie, his purse is now flaccid and inverted. We can also see how the engraver used the earlier print as a guide, thinking about the placement of the figure's white cravat in his wristcuff in the later print. The publisher used the reissuing of this print as an occasion to update the print's text, overhauling the list of bubbles to reflect the latest investment schemes. Coal is no longer listed um, among the minor bubbles, but is featured as its own article. Um, no longer referred to as sea coal, but associated with the name um, with, Britain's leadest, with Britain's leading coal producing areas, which was um, Newcastle. According to the text, the values of coal shares had more than quadrupled, a seemingly suspicious amount to the scribe who penned the verse. In actuality, Britain was in the midst of its own energy crisis and coal was readily available, which may attribute to the author's disbelief in the, the fuel's increased value, resulting in his punning of, inflammation, of inflation and inflammation as he warns that the coal trade is a scheme that will burn through investors and go up in smoke, if not flames. And I also just wanted to point out, so thinking, even though I know we're all virtual, but this, um, print in the second one, they are still referring to Pennsylvania Company as a bubble, which awarded shareholders with returns of 800%, which was seen as preposterously large. However, this association of coal as a popular but volatile investment eventually subsided, given Britain's own energy crisis, which mirrored and predated the one in the United States. In this print for Rudolf Ackerman's serial, Microcosm of London, we see that in the, by the first decade of the 19th century, coal was no longer a bubble, but was an actively traded stable commodity, complete with its own dedicated exchange building as Britain's coal market expanded with exports to the United States, where the fuel was called Liverpool coal. Um, and so for this print series, the publisher Ackerman commissioned scenes featuring buildings central to life in London, or that were historically accurate or significant to the city. The Coal Exchange was a new building. Its lofty, luxurious, light-filled interior offers a stark contrast to the dark and cramped cavity of the coal mine. Fusion and Rowlandson's depiction of London's Coal Exchange book belies the labor associated with coal. And for the readers and collectors of Ackerman's publication, coal, much like those of the bubble, was a paper commodity. The visual culture of the United States does not have any exact parallels of anthracite treated visually as a paper commodity. Um, as Ackerman does in his etching or in the, the two previous bubbles, uh, bubble broadsides. But in this 1831 guide to Pennsylvania, similar to Ackerman's publication in scope, um, in that they each featured the highlights of their respective metropolitan locales. By Mies and Porter, including Bolton's anthracite stores in their guide, they're similarly announcing the importance of the coal trade in Philadelphia at this early phase. And so for my first case study, I want to showcase 
some of the various ways that the public came to learn about anthracite. And so the first one that is a little bit um, short, we're looking at, I'm just comparing two textual sources that end up in the home as kind of popular literature or popular reading material. During the first half of the 1830s, in the first years of its publication, Godey's Lady Book printed a regular feature on mineralogy. In September 1835, this column concluded with a series on the articles, on an article on inflammable and incendiary materials, um, noting that they're all made of carbon, highlighting sulfur, diamond, and coal as the, as the last specimens in this series. It should be noted that technically coal is not a mineral, but is a sedimentary rock made of vegetal and animal material. Um, and it's not considered a mineral because it's primarily composed of organic elements. In this Godey feature, coal is not illustrated and receives the shortest description out of the three, with the author describing coal as, quote, a combination of carbon, earthly material, and bitumen, which is, black, which is a black substance, generally oozing in a liquid state from the beds of coal, but sometimes is so inverted as to be solid and either brittle or soft and elastic. Naphtha, which can be distilled from it, also occurs natural flowing through sandy soils or floating into streams of water." End quote. Although it is not unforeseen that diamonds would receive a treatment um, that highlights its famous specimens and ran for 15 times the column inches to coal in this article, um, as a Philadelphia publication, it's surprising that in 1835, Godey's Lady Book did not seek to situate coal as, a tempor as temporally an important mineral, not just in Eastern Pennsylvania, but throughout the Eastern seaboard, where the state's anthracite was being transported, much like the, um, how the magazine was circulated itself. The short description uh, does not mention the primary use of, fuel, of coal as a fuel source, but instead draws attention to its, its byproduct, naphtha, a kind of flammable oil. In questioning an omission of such crucial um, facts, it's, it's especially at the moment when local anthracite production was rapidly increasing, it is difficult to see past what we may perceive as a gendered approach to editorial content, and that the editors may not have viewed such facts as of interest to women. However, this explanation doesn't hold up, in, in my opinion, because only six months previously, the magazine had run an extremely scientifically technical article on caloric theory, namely the process by which elementary fires produce, which is the term for when um, one element passes heat into another and combustion occurs, which is actually quite essential to how you get coal to light. So the idea that this wouldn't be of interest to women, it doesn't really hold up. But as a point of contrast, I wanted to share a publication that had a different approach. Meant for a generalist audience, the 1850 edition of Popular Mineralogy, per its subtitle, explicitly endeavored to discuss the use of, uses and applications of the specimens therein contained. Not only do the authors mention anthracite's efficacy as a fuel source, but it notes that it burns without flame or odor. Most notably, the British authors depart from the limiting description of coal as black, but take notice of its iridescence that can be found in certain specimens of this American variety of coal. Um, I don't know if the, I mean, I'm sure minerals moved around at this time, but whether um, how much familiarity the British editors had with this book or if they were hiring an American illustrator. Um, but such a, um, but anyway, such a quality of this comment would have done been well served in the Godey series on mineral collecting. 
And then to switch gears again, um, for the second case study, I wanted to start thinking about how texts like Godey's, to move beyond texts like Godey's and popular mineralogy, brought the, the idea of coal into the home, but not just think about Colin's idea, but think about it as the fuel source itself. While the adoption of coal proved essential to industrial growth, its use in the domestic setting was a harder sell. The primary issue, as noted by many householders, was the difficulty encountered when trying to ignite fuel, which is addressed in this humorous etching by David Claypool Johnson. Featured in his scraps from 1832, like the title suggests, Johnson's series was a miscellany of graphic jocularity, with each set containing a few multi-image sheets, um, as seen in the smaller sheet on the right. So this is a detail on the left. Johnson's subjects touch upon contemporary issues and human foibles. In his scrap, Antiphilogistic, Johnson pokes fun at the confusion and common complaint that many consumers of coal found difficulty in attempting to start a fire with this substance. This struggle lies at the center of the print. Two men at right approach an older looking man who stands at his hearth, addressing him as Wilkins in remarks about his experiments with our Rhode Island coal, which they characterize as economical. And it would have been for Johnston, Rhode Island Coal, um, who was working and publishing in Boston. Um, Rhode Island Coal would have been an, ex an expensive option for him and his local audiences, as the regional fuel did not have the built-in costs of shipment over water. Um, there was no interstate trains just quite yet in 1832, um, or coal from Pennsylvania or sailed over from Liverpool. Though now often overlooked, Rhode Island um, was an early supplier of anthracite coal in the United States, but compared to the deposits of Lehigh and Schuylkill coal, specimens from Rhode Island were notorious, notoriously intractable and nearly impossible to catch fire. This idea has not been lost in Wilkins, who disgruntledly remarks about how he has been experimenting since 8 a.m. and his mental clock now reads 1 p.m., hence his frustration and his discomfort, wearing a hat and an Inverness coat and heavy abar coat with the additional cape. Um, inside, inside his house, because he's yet to warm his house for the day. But as we can observe in Johnson's illustrations, Wilkins is not the individual who is attempting to kindle his heart. Rather, this labor is performed by two houseboys, one African-American and one white, the racial difference used as a point of contrast that is further pronounced through the monochromatic um, nature of etching. Though the African-American boy who diligently deploys his bellows in the grate is depicted with stereotypically racist facial features of bulging eyes and large lips, the features are similarly oversized in Johnson's depiction of his fellow servant who furiously blows his own breath in the direction of the fireplace to aid his fellow servant's efforts. In their continual um, efforts to ignite the fire, the boys have overcompensated by overfilling the grate, emptying the entire bushel basket of Rhode Island coal. The critique of this print is not aimed at their futile efforts, but at Wilkins' presumed inability to perform the task himself, as well as his mismanagement of his own household, his incompetence to keep the literal home fires burning, and in the process he wasted his own, um, sorry, excuse me, Wilkins has obliged his servants to a near Sisyphean task, wasting their time and labor, and in the process has wasted his own money by outfitting his coal stores with a subpar fuel. Johnson pokes fun at Wilkins' dedication to his notions of making thrift, along with the latent agents in the print. Scowling Wilkins is rendered as older than the visiting men, who with their unlined faces and trim profiles are decidedly more modern but misguided in their advocation for Rhode Island coal, if we were to understand their comments at face value. 
With the title of this print, along with the premise of Johnson's scrap as being a jocular publication, suggests that the viewer would, should not accept these comments as straightforward as indicated by the print's title. Antiphlogistic, phlogistic, I'm sorry, I have a hard time pronouncing it, means the quality of inflammability or resisting combustion. All combustible materials were believed to contain an element of phlogiston that would release upon burning. This theory was based more on alchemy than actual chemical and physical science and had been disproved by the end of the 18th century. Hence, in this print, it's not only Wilkins Rhode Island coal that is antiphlogistic, but also himself, as his commitment to his miserly ways has prevented scientific ideas from taking spark. Before moving further into our discussion about coal in the domestic setting, I want to use um, the example of Johnson's scrap to breach a motif that recurs in the more literary, literal imagery surrounding coal with its connection between coal and race, an association that goes back to 18th century Britain. Because coal miners and haulers came from, often came from the lower, lowest social classes and that their very labor often caused them to be covered in coal dust, their subalternity was racialized with coal workers' very blackness leading them to be treated with the same prejudices as other people of color in Britain. In the United States in the following century, chimney sweeping, at least in Northern cities, was often a task performed by free black boys and men. As widespread racial prejudices restricted their economic opportunities and participations in other occupational environments, the hazardous and highly unpleasant work of chimney sweeping was a work of last resort, or in the case of orphaned children's, was a labor market they were often coerced into by Fagan-like ringleaders. For these laborers, the very material substance of their work, coal dust, soot, ashes, becomes indexical of their own skin. This trope of the black chimney sweep and its connotation of the shared blackness of coal and skin appears in the visual culture, both in conventional and racist stereotypes. In the political satire on the left, two black workers are included as a part of a crowded street scene. Although the designer of the lithograph has included several ethnic stereotypes in the composition, only two figures have occupations that are also racially coded, as the chimney sweep and the boot black. And Calio's watercolors are more um, sympathetic in their approach, but they still conform to the convention of the chimney sweep as an African-American. The Patney chimney sweep, um, sweeper revolutionized the trade, cleaning out chimneys and flues without the um, sweep needing to physically enter the flue, and also prevented too much soot from entering the client's domicile. Calio's drawing of the chimney sweep at rest touches upon the hard existence of these juvenile sweeps, underscored by their marginal status in the city's social landscape. Dressed in rags, the young sweep huddles on a stoop that suggested that he is homeless or is seeking refuge from the predatory sweep leaders. Other references um, between Cole and African-Americans are form, far more racist as evidenced in vignettes from sheet music for the song, Cole Black Rose, which was first performed as a racial parody in the late 1820s by George Washington Dixon and soon became a mainstay of blackface minstrelsy in the second quarter of the 19th century. Originally a folk song, the lyrics lampoon rival suitors arguing over the object of their mutual affection, whose one attribute is referenced in the song's title, that her skin is as black as coal, which as a racist trope makes her desirability questionable and becomes the object of farce when staged, on, when staged in blackface by a male performer. The coding of the black female body as desexualized through its very darkness and coal black rose prefigures other racist imagery that emerges later in the 19th century, such as the mammy figure. 
His stereotypical figure was often employed extensively in marketing household cleaning products like soap, iron starch, and stove polish, where the black made skin serves to contrast the whiteness of the soap or the starch, or in the case of stove polish, underscores her very blackness. Um, in preparing the presentation today, I've decided not to screen these images as I've opted not to give them a platform that are not essential to my, my discussion tonight. But um, I did include it because it kind of brings this part full circle and that thinking about the stove, um, it brings us to Wilkins, back to Wilkins' dilemma. Unlike wood that was readily available, or unlike wood that was readily incendiary, the ignition of coal remained a mystery for anyone who was charged with igniting, um, with igniting a stove or coal grate. Various household guests, guides, excuse me, provided instructions to servants and householders to lighting, maintaining, and regulating domiciles anthracite heat source, um, which could be used for heating the residence and cooking. Out of all the guides I consulted, the most user-friendly for myself and period readers was Almond Fisk's The United States Fuel Almanac for 1842. Fisk's publication begins like a standard almanac with the first pages providing astrological information like eclipses, zodiac signs, schedules of planets, and tide tables for the stretch of the Eastern seaboard and list of holidays requiring feasts and fasts. This is followed by a page for each month, including a table of the daily sunrise, sunset, and moonrise. And the rest of the table, um, but the rest of the almanac is devoted to topics related to fuel. A two-page list of wood types compiles um, information on to the wood's gravity with a mind to how each wood would fare in the production of charcoal, which was a necessary kindle for starting fires with anthracite. And these tables were followed by additional diagrams of projected prices of each wood for next year. Next, the author commences a multi-page practical guide to household fuel management, when to fell wood, how to cure it, on the general use of fuel, the construction of stoves, on the special construction of stoves for using anthracite, of how to set one stove up in their house, and on the construction of a chimney, um, and lastly, on the proper ignition of anthracite. After these 22 pages of dense text, the reader is treated to several pages of illustrating the latest style in stoves, which if they have just read Fisk's Almanac, they should feel confident to set up night and use. It is only, and here we go, it is only when one reaches these pages featuring the models of stoves and ovens and heating elements, does the reader realize that the author Fisk is the proprietor of a stove store, not an Almanac um, salesman, but given his placement of his establishment's name several times on each page. By distributing his almanac, Fisk was ensuring that his customers were among the best educated about the new style of coal ovens and how to operate them. Not only was he providing a necessary service to potential clients, but he was winning over their trust. A set of highly specific lithographic advertisements rendered by W.H. Reese in the mid-1840s sheds light on the variety of stove retailers in Pennsylvania during this period, revealing that each proprietor had their own niche or specialty within the wider market. Charles Gilbert's manufactory was the most upscale with a cavernous interior and multiple registers of merchandise lining the walls. A well-dressed proprietor greets the customers on the street and his well-appointed storefront is flanked by two statues. Additional stoves in the second floor windows indicates that he had even further inventory and smiths are seen hammering on the third floor workshop. The Gothic lettering suggests that Gilbert may have tailored his wares to Philadelphia's German population. Um, and then the firm of Piper and Andrew dealt in smaller wares, 
grates, radiator stoves, etc., um, which are also visible through the shop's opening. The small narrow building is befitting the specialty or specialty of chimney pipes, which lean against the store's exterior. Joseph Finorn's Sun Shop was a superstore of sorts, a double storefront that showcased the company's different but related wares. Oh, sorry, the store on the right. Yes, the store on the right um, only bears the father's name, suggesting that their business was so successful, they were eventually able to expand and Fanior added his son as the co-proprietor. Carrying a large variety of mid-sized stoves, showcasing more than um, the other shopkeepers directly did on the sidewalk, Fanior and son catered to the large middle-class market. The scene presented in the Finemore storefront takes off on a gendered reading. Two female customers are seen selecting pieces at the middle cookware shop, both aided by young male assistants, whereas a man, perhaps one of their husbands, um, is inside the stove store. As a larger and more expensive purchase, such an expenditure would fall under the purview of the male head of household. The opposite dynamic is on view at the Furring Intudium's cheap stove warehouse. Billing itself as a discount retailer, the heaters on display by the store's exterior are small in scale, and the lone customer is an older woman, as suggested by her long black shawl and dark bonnet, implying that she's a widow. Of straightened circumstances, she would be among the target market for a cut-rate stove emporium. So in so um, working towards a conclusion and as a point of summary, the common factor between all these stoves is that they are predominantly, of all, of all these stove stores, is that they all predominantly traded in the barrel-shaped or barrel-coraled stoves that burned anthracite best and most efficiently. Made of iron, these stoves could only be made by the smithing of their very material at the high heat reached by burning coal. The metaphor of heating up to make materials more malleable is an apt one for the visual culture of coal. And I hope I have in, um, introduced in my talk tonight that the second quarter of the 19th century, though not as imaged widely, an undercurrent of preoccupation with and reliance on coal would soon permeate nearly every part of consumer culture and also make inroads into the development of its own visual culture. Although I'm only at the beginning of the stages of this project, like many in the 19th century, I believe it would be a rich one to mine if you will excuse the pun. Thank you for listening and I would enjoy taking your questions. Sorry about that, Rebecca. Thank you so much. That was great. I really appreciated um, that the talk. Um, and um, I see there, let's see. Um, Thank you, Andrea. <laughs> I start to think about um, questions. Um, and have time to um, to um, type them in. Um, I, I'm just gonna. I will ask you a question if you um, do not. Um, so you know, as you were talking, you were ending. Um, you know, talking about or even in the middle about the the gendering of of the visual culture um, of coal. So I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit more about some of the materials you've looked at and um, thinking in terms of you know the illusions and depictions of coal and its and its use. And you know, really appreciated. Um, lithographic advertisements at the end and, and the connections that you were making uh, between you know uh, you know the, the widowed woman and going to a, a stove store that would be um, you know uh, uh, not like host or not wholesale but you know the best rated um, 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 stove so yeah if, if you don't mind just sort of talking a little bit more about some connections you've found in your your studies it comes up in so many different ways like even just in that print of who what I think is a widow um, in that um, image 
that's the only print what I find so interesting though I guess they show a stove being loaded into a wagon elsewhere but in that print there's one that's coming like there's a comes kind of a driveway through the store that she is a single woman clearly um who's buying a cheap stove doesn't have her own coach or wagon to get her wares home and has to re um, rely on the company to get these things home for her. Um, I only showcased that one almanac, which again, it kind of almost seems to fall under the um, male purview of the house because it's talking about, I mean, it's basically, um, you know, thinking about how people use almanacs in terms of keeping the day or keeping the times or keeping the tides and thinking about planting. Um, mostly fall under, you know, if a man is planning the garden for the year um, in the mid 19th century, but also thinking about the ads that appear in the back of that catalog, they are maybe more directed towards the, the head of the household will be deciding on that purchase. But there are other ones that are kind of written for um, women and telling them how to, um, you know, fill the grate, what to expect, how to, when to stroke the coals at certain time in the morning and then again at 11. Um, and then, uh, but also for those who were in a different social class, how to manage your servants to do this, like how to instruct them to do these things. So I do have a couple questions that uh, have come in. So I, um, uh, yeah, I will ask them. Um, so um, I, we'll see if you have the, I don't know if you have the answer to this, um, but from your, your research, um, how do you light coal at home and at a manufacturing furnace? I don't know if you have that in your stuff, do you have that answer? That's one thing I feel like I'm, <laughs> it was so great to revisit this material that I gathered over a year now at Library Company. And so I didn't go back through it all for this talk because it's really in a store for you know the post-dissertation project. But I do know that, so coal doesn't light itself and you need to use a Kindle um, material, usually charcoal. So kind of pre-burned wood to get the fire to, to get the coal to, you know, to, to burn and to do its thing. Um, so that's why in that one almanac where you think that the author is including wood as the primary fuel source, he's really thinking about how you'll convert it into charcoal, which is why where the um, densities are come into play or the gravity and the burning. Um, so you have to have a Kindle to get it to work. Great, thank you. Another question, um, are you considering images or the conditions suffered by coal workers? Um, Charles Dickens was moved to write a Christmas call by news of a disastrous British mining accident and images of children working in the mines where they had to crawl because the tunnel ceilings were so low. It's something I'm definitely thinking of. I did, haven't gotten to it yet in terms of this material, um, but there are images. Like I know there's in 1955, there was um, some images in Harper's Weekly and you can't even see the workers in it. So this is in a subterranean mine, it's not surface mining, but you can see the lights from their lamps. And so how that becomes like a metonym for the worker that you can't even see them, they just blend into the background and it's terribly dangerous. Um, and then on the, what I found really interesting, I don't know if I should screen share again, but on the, should I just, um, yeah, okay. I, I won't be able to see you there. Um, Let's see. Yeah, so this image, which is off the cover of the 1942 coal um, almanac, clearly these are women in a subterranean coal pick, um, mine picking up um, pieces. So I think that might be 
I mean, I don't want to speculate, but I think it's something maybe making reference to mines in South America, or I don't know, it doesn't seem to be from the United States. Yeah, that's just something else I need to think about. So another question, um, thank you so much for your fascinating talk. Uh, I really love the arc you created in your presentation between extraction to the stove and the gender and racial dynamics you're bringing into your research. I was curious how cleaning enters into um, discussions of coal in the home at this time or later. Could you talk a bit more about if and how the removal of coal dust comes into play? Yeah, sure, Christine. Thank you. That's a great question. That's something that I really, because um, I realized I proposed this talk to be the second quarter of the 19th century, and a lot of those um, racial stereotypes happen like in the 1860s and later. But there are um, a bunch of ads which both relate to race and gender because it has um, a, a white mistress of the household and her black servant, and they're often working in concert together, but also as a form of contrast where um, the white mistress needs to kind of get a better product to help her servants work go easier. And together they clean the stove and it's so easier and so great and shining black. And you can see how the white woman gets then reflected in the shining stove, but the black woman does not. And um, so all, there's all these sorts of kind of visual layers and tropes that go into it. Um, and same thing with soap, which I know, Christine, I think you remember from when we were at AAS in our seminar together, but same things that happens too. And there's, so there's soap ads where either coal dust that a little child has gotten into the coal heap or bucket or has gotten into the stove blackening and that they need to be, have that erased from them um, in some way. So this is um, sort of more of a um, comment, but I think it could also be a, a question as well. Um, uh, this is Andrea as, as a colleague of mine at the, the library company. And actually I will plug that she's an exhibition on coal opening up at the library company in spring of um, 2021. Um, so I just you know, need to, to make that plug. Um, so Andrea is um, commenting, I have never seen a line graph like the anthracite production 1820 to 1870. I love the way the data is represented on the graph and you penned it in mirror, uh, mirrored x-axis, a really interesting choice by the, the, by the designer. So I wonder if you, I know, uh, maybe want to comment if you thought about that design, the design choice um, that, um, that was made and uh, you know, if you have uh, um, other kinds of um, uh, comments or uh, your perception of that, that chart. What I love about that image so much is that, I mean, the tricky thing about coal, and so it's like, I, I wanna always think about it as being mined, and I guess it's always is mined, but when it gets surface mined, it's almost more akin to quarrying. Um, and in the first phase of coal extraction, it is a lot of surface mining happening at Schuylkill because it's just there on the top. And it's not until later that they get into the different coal seams and arches um, that those get extracted subterraneously. But I still think of like, you know, coal mountains and like you think of Mount Chuck. And so the idea that this graphic form kind of takes a peak, even though it gets inverted and comes down, but how we look at it, it looks like a mountain. What is really, and Andrea, cause you're the one who shared this with me, I'll send you an email. But when I was going through my photos, I chose that black and white one because it's just, I think it was easier to read on the screen, but it's from that same big portfolio of the 1884, 1881 survey of the Google. Southern Schuylkill, um, or is it all Pennsylvania survey? 
remember. Um, there, it's the same infographic that somehow, I don't know, and maybe Erica could jump in about that, but the black and white one that I was using, that's some, and that's pasted in some scrapbook, but that graph is actually taken from the big survey that has all those details. So I, but I realized that looking through my photos. So Andrea, I will email you that better map so you can look at it with all the info. Yeah, I, I must admit at this moment, it, uh, I think you have more information than, than I do that I can provide a better citation, but hopefully between your notes and, uh, you know, if, if you need me to assist in some way, I, I can do that as, as well. Um, there is a, a, another um, a, a comment um, that I'll, I'll share with everyone. Um, it's about um, domestic mm -hmm. industrial coal fires would be banked overnight so that they never went out, um, thus avoiding having to start a fire coal. So I think this maybe speaks a little bit to the Claypole Johnston um, a, a, a cartoon. Um, so yes, I think you know, that could potentially provide another element of how you would read what was what was going on in that um, that satire um, there. Yeah, and that's something just to be gendered about it again. But that's something. Um, well, we think about the primacy of fire. Like, is it male? Is it female? But that scene is homosocial. It's all men. There's no women attending the fire to the scene. It's almost perhaps a commentary on household mismanagement in that way. That maybe it should be a woman who's overseeing these things, or I don't know but there's another way to think about it. <laughs> but exactly, there, that comes up in the manuals that, I mean, were sometimes written for women, but exactly, you you let it kind of, you rake up the coals at night and it, you let it die down all the way and then you reload at like 7.38 in the morning when you get up to make breakfast and reheat up the house before everyone else gets up. Um, a woman or a servant would have to do that often. <laughs> Um, so another uh, sort of a, 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 a comment, but also could potentially become a, a question as well is, um, I've read that about 1814, Jacob Sist of the Lehigh Coal Mine Company found existing technology inadequate for adapting hard coal. And he designed new furnaces and advertised Lehigh Coal in handbills and newspapers. I'm not sure if that's um, someone that you're familiar with or, <laughs> yeah. His name has come up. Um, thank you, Gretchen, for that comment. I just... Um, I, for some reason, I get a lot of the images that I had saved. Well, I guess it comes out of me thinking about Collio and the Schuylkill Canal, I ended up thinking about the Schuylkill Canal and the Schuylkill Navigation Company, where the Lehigh, um, that was the first coal company. They existed before Schuylkill and they had their canal first and that canal, so that was on the northern end of the um, anthracite coal banks and we go out to the Delaware and then come down to Philadelphia that way as opposed to down this Google. Um, but yes, they were earlier, most definitely. So he, they had more <laughs> that technology than this, this Google's did. This, um, <laughs> Um, so we're coming up at uh, six o'clock. Um, I, um, I know, I think uh, in our advertising we said um, 6.30, but um, you know, depending, we can uh, you know, have folks go off and have their, their dinner at this point. Uh, I'm not seeing any other questions um, pop up, um, but if I can wait uh, you know, another uh, you know, 30 seconds, a minute, if someone wants to type one in. Uh, but actually, I, I, I'm ending that, but then I'm saying, I, well, I have a question actually. <laughs> I mean, that's like another one um, to add, you know, add a, a couple um, more minutes. Um, I, I kind of, well, and in talking with Andrea and then thinking about your work and, and the talk and you think, seeing that Fairmount Waterworks um, painting in the beginning and, um, you know, this was like, you know, the, the coal barge, you can see like, you know, the coal was, you know, beautifully portrayed um, in that, that, um, that, pe that artwork. Um, so I'm just curious in, in thinking about, you know, showing coal is beautiful. I mean, and I always feel like in almost in that mineral mineralogy um, text as well, you know, 
the, the iridescence, like, it, I mean, I think yeah. it's a really beautiful um, lithograph, but I'm also thinking, you know, potentially how you think of, you know, our contemporary um, perceptions of, of coal as, you know, something of dirty, part of um, our climate um, problems, um, you know, and, and, and so trying to, I don't know, you know, make that, that disconnect, or can you see coal as beautiful despite happening? Yeah, that's one thing, and I, I was cringing when you were reading the, the pressing to my paper, the one thing I ended up cutting just because I, I had enough was that third theme of um, naturalizing coal in the landscape. I mean, both coal as a organic material makes it become naturalized, but the extraction does the kind of, I don't want to say suspension of belief, but you know, how it doesn't get hidden, but it gets below. I mean, the idea that um, Mount Chunk becomes a, a tourist um, attraction where, you know, you go there and visit and go on the railroad and see it. I mean, it's beautiful. There's, it's, there's valleys. It's a very picturesque landscape. There's a lot, all when you think about the picturesque and what it entails of these, you know, different heights and screens, dramatic vistas, though now some of the land is just spliced. Um, also the pictorial sketchbook of Pennsylvania, that was the one thing I cut, but a project that comes out, I think in the 1830s or 40s. Um, it's just a whole travel um, area through there and there's about 80 pages of coal in there. And so it really is a literary topographical um, study of Pennsylvania, of Eastern Pennsylvania, um, and thinks about how the land is used. It celebrates it as, you know, this natural landscape, but, and, but also discusses the type of geological um, changes and the labor that's happening. Um, I'm not as familiar with, I'm trying to think if there's images of laborers, but I know it shows, you know, both beautiful landscapes and woodcuts, but also the same type of, um, surveys and details and cross sections that you see in other types of the visual culture. So there, there are, are some landscape things out there that can definitely be, <laughs> make it yeah. beautiful. Yeah, well, thank you so much. This was a wonderful- yeah. Thank you everyone for coming and for your helpful questions. <laughs> All the really great questions and for the really great answers. Um, so um, as this is um, you know, an early side um, fireside um, chat, I want to mention um, the fireside chat that is coming up um, next week. Um, so it'll be at the usual time, um, seven to eight for um, you uh, regular attendees. Um, and the chat is um, a talk by, um, let's see, um, Emily Polly about um, the it's a book talk, The Nature of the Future, Agriculture, Science and Capitalism in the Antebellum North. So I hope um, some of you will be joining um, us um, next uh, week as well. Again, thank you so much, um, Rebecca, and thank you everyone for joining us um, tonight. And I hope you have a, a great rest of your week. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye.